0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, with David Campbell, Dr. David Campbell, and uh, Dave Baker. It is so good to be uh, on this call with you guys. Uh, my name is Ron, and I'm the pastor of Vital Point. If you're a guest on this, we're so excited you're here. If you're a regular part of Vital Point and you're checking this out, that's pretty awesome. Uh, tonight, we've got a, an amazing conversation that we're um, really excited about because we believe it's an important conversation for us to be having. But uh, we're going to be talking with uh, David Campbell with um, regards to uh, the last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation, and uh, he's actually written a book called uh, Mystery Explained. And uh, I actually was just joking with him before we started this live uh, webinar that the book is actually pretty physically heavy, and uh, which is appropriate because I think so oftentimes we look at this uh, the book of Revelation through that lens that it is heavy, but. Uh, we actually, as a church, and Dave and myself were introduced to uh, David Campbell uh, a while ago. Actually, um, I was watching a um, basically a lecture on the topic of faith from uh, an online um, thing called Theosu, which is actually the seminary that David is part of. Uh, actually, both Dave's are part of Theosu. Uh, Dave is actually attending it, and David is actually one of the Teachers in this whole thing, and and I was watching this uh, seminar on faith uh, through CSU and I'm looking at the background, and I'm like, I think I know where he's filmed this series from, and it was it was in Stratford at a B and B that I was familiar with, and um, so one thing led to another, and then now we find ourselves in this moment uh, talking about this. Uh, uh, what was really neat about uh, our relationship with you, David, is that. Um, You've been willing to step in on a number of things uh, connected to Vital Point Church, and uh, we actually had you um, uh, speak at our church uh, a number of weeks ago on the topic of the Bible, and you spent three weeks unpacking that for us, and it was beautiful. The response was absolutely incredible on many levels, and um, we just thought following out of that, you kind of dropped the hint a few times about, uh, you know, a passion of yours, Revelation. And uh, your wife was in the filming with us and she was rolling her eyes a couple of times as you dropped in about maybe doing something on this. <laughs> but um, this uh, this book uh, just came from uh, Amazon just last week and Mystery Explained. It's uh, I started reading it. It's fantastic. And uh, it's actually sparked in me some really exciting things uh, with regards to Uh, this book. So I've given a bit of a thumbnail from our relationship with you, uh, David, but we would love to know a little bit more about you. Uh, Give us a bit of your story, um, you know, fill that in
2: for us. Could you do that for us? That'd be great. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on taking possession of your building.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Today, when we were filming this on March 4th, 2021, we Actually closed in our very first facility in Poplar Hill. It's a centralized place for us. So thank you for that. It's great. I'm I'm actually trying not to levitate right now. So <laughs> with so, with excitement. So but anyway, it's good. Thank you for that.
2: Um, it's well. I'm looking forward to seeing it. So, uh, we um have appreciated uh, Elaine and I have appreciated meeting you and Desiree and and Dave. We haven't met Dave's wife yet or your Uh, or his little one. Yeah. um, Of course. My wife and I uh, met in England. I uh, planted a church while I was doing a PhD in um, the University of Durham in in Northern England. And uh, Elaine was nursing at the hospital. And uh, she came to the church. And that's where we met. And I carted her off to Canada. Her poor mom and dad, you know, I had no... I certainly didn't have enough sympathy for them at the time. Um, <laughs> we then planted a, a congregation in Owen Sound where we stayed for a very long period of time. And then, um, but I always had engaged in traveling ministry, uh, particularly in the uh, teaching dimension and leadership coaching and some other things and working with young leaders in particular. Uh, and so um Uh, three or four years ago, we felt God was telling us just to step down from church leadership and launch out in faith without any income or anything like that, um, to devote ourselves uh, full time to this kind of thing. And it's been absolutely extraordinary how God has provided. Um, I mean, I just, it's been amazing. and has blown me away, but we've also, uh, you know, we work with, uh i don't know possibly 20 churches in the united kingdom a number of churches in the u.s uh a number of churches in canada um i've I've written um four uh i've written three books and co-written a fourth and i've got two more manuscripts in my laptop one of which i'm getting ready to publish which is a book on suffering and uh oh wow Contains a number of stories of people's stories as well as my little, you know teaching parts in between um And uh, Then we got involved in Theos university, which is an online teaching platform Uh, and uh, it is re it really is directed toward millennials. It's very edgy And everybody's half my age or less and uh, but we all connect with you really well, David (laughs) Sorry, we all connect with you really well, though. Well, thank you. I guess I'll take that as a compliment Um, the uh, Two brothers that started it their dad is a pastor in Ontario and has been a a very close friend and associate of ours for 30 years and uh, that's how I got involved they needed some help uh, with content and um, Quite a lot of uh, people are now involved with it and it's a brilliant model. It's you know, you pay 13 or 14 dollars a month you get unlimited content um and they call it the netflix of theology and yeah they have got thousands of well, i should say thousands I've, um 4, 000, uh subscribers to it mm. uh that's within 18 months um they started a degree program which david is is a student in uh and they have about a hundred and well they they had 150 but it was increasing by the day the last time i checked uh in that and we're starting god willing a master's program Mm -hmm. in the fall so um it makes training excessive it's 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 extraordinary how many churches there are that have people leading them have absolutely no theological training at all Mm -hmm. and what are you supposed to do if you're leading? A church. I was talking to a, a gentleman that leads a very large church in, in Northern Ireland this afternoon, and uh, he was a production manager in a factory. That was his business, and uh, he wound up in church leadership, and now he's leading this congregation. It was a lot of responsibility. He, he never had an ounce of theological training, and Theos Seminary came along, and for a very minimal cost, and of course, you can yeah. just go through it as little or as much time as you want. Um, the old model was you've got to pack up, move somewhere, go to Bible college for four years, spend a fortune and all the rest of it. And then you might come back with doctrine that was contrary to your home church. So I guess the last thing I'll say, Ron, is uh, as a pastor, I'm as a lifelong pastor, Um, The highest authority in the kingdom of God is the local eldership. There is no higher authority. There's no hierarchy. We don't believe in a hierarchy. Um, And so I highly honor and respect the local church. And um, we're in a variety of congregations. And I always try to honor what the senior pastor and his team have asked me to do. And if there's ever an area of doctrine that I know we have a disagreement on, I will never discuss it in that congregation or uh, with a member of the congregation or, or anything like that. So I'm really just here to honor Vital Point and your leadership. And if I tread on anybody's toes, it's absolutely not uh, my intention to do that. And and the folks will have to forgive me in yeah. a, if I... Uh, you know, if I say something that maybe isn't exactly the way that they've looked at it, so please have have grace and mercy upon me.
1: Yes. All right. That's great. Okay. So, David, we're um we're gonna we've laid out uh, a path for for us as, as some uh, words to Revelation, and and if someone wants to ask a question, you can put it in the chat. I think David's yeah. already. Sorry, Dave has already put it in the chat and saying, just drop them in there because we'll leave some time at the end to go through any of those questions that come up. But, um, you know, Revelation, it's not your, um, you don't often hear people like say, you know, like, oh, I just love this book. Uh, You know, you have seemed to grab a hold of it. What drew you to it? Like, how did you become interested in this, in this?
2: Yeah, I walked into a bookstore in, in Grand Rapids uh, about 15 years ago, and a friend the friend that I was with just handed me a $100 bill. Ooh. Well, any preacher will take a $100 bill. So <laughs> I did. And uh, he said, just buy something. And anyway, um, I found this commentary on the book of Revelation, a very long one. And I had been one of those people, and, and this is to my shame, really, because I'm a trained theologian, biblical scholar i've been one of those people you know that always used to say well i'm a pan millennialist, this is all pan out in the end and i'm not right. really bothered about the detail and god convicted me in that moment mm. and uh i bought this book and i took it home and started to read it and you know you're not supposed to read commentaries you're you're supposed to consult the particular yeah. you're preaching on you know i read a bit here and a bit there but i couldn't put this thing down this is a massive book. It's it's um, the introduction was was three hundred pages, um, and I oh. read the introduction about three times. I started getting into the text. Uh, it's very technical. There's a lot of Greek and Hebrew and all the rest of it in it. And bit by bit, every piece of the puzzle fell into place uh, for the Book of Revelation. And then I felt God spoke to me to write a condensed version of this because I was, I was became kind of angry, in a way, at the way the message has been stolen. The true message of Revelation has been kind of hijacked by um, a lot of the popular end times people. And uh, so I wrote a summary of it, and I sent it to the author. And uh, it's a very long story, but in the end, I wound up collaborating with him on a commentary on Revelation, which was a condensed version of his. And it's called The Shorter Commentary, and it's anything short. He said to me, "I think we'll have to change the name." Uh, I mean, my book there that you very kindly purchased and advertised, Ron, is uh, a, a less than half the length of this other one, and the original one is is uh, you know you I I couldn't even take it with me on an airplane because it would ruin my baggage allowance. So uh, so that's wow. so anyway. And then you know I started being asked to do seminars in churches and and um uh i wrote mystery explained because my wife read the the shorter one the supposed shorter one that wasn't short and she said that's too much for me write one that i can understand so that's why i wrote it for my wife it's it's actually directed at the average church member uh and it's uh designed you know you can sit with the text in one hand and you're reading it through and then i give what is hopefully a simple, you know, reasonably yes. understood explanation, uh, verse by verse. Uh, so that that's uh, that's that. That's how I got involved in it.
1: You know, it's it's ama- it's amazing to me that you know a simple gesture of a gift. You go into this bookstore, and in this moment, just opens up for you. It's amazing how God can kind of create those moments uh, for people. It's just absolutely beautiful and. That's the first I've heard how this came to be for you. So that's, uh, that's an amazing story. Um, there, there's a number of, of ways, and you've already alluded to some of this. There's a number of ways people approach uh, the book of Revelation. I'd love for you to speak to the f- four ways, the four typical ways that people would interpret Revelation. Could you kind of fill that in a bit for us? You do a beautiful job in your book, but just for the people that are watching right now and listening, could you um,
2: kind of approach
1: for the four ways? Yeah.
2: There's there's basically four ways in the history of the church that um, people have approached Revelation, one of which is uh, called the, the preterist, and that's just uh, derived from a Latin word for past. And what it means is that everything in the book of Revelation happened way back in the first century, and was it's all concerned with how the Roman armies conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the temple in a.d. 70 and if you read the gospel and warned the christians that they were to you know run from housetop to housetop the flat housetops they could do that and head for the hills and it just as a side note it's interesting that um at the last moment before the roman the romans stopped allowing people to leave the city during the siege, uh, at the last minute, the entire Christian community fled on the basis of Jesus' prophecy and were saved. The rest of the city was obliterated. Um, So preterist, the view, it takes all of the book of Revelation as referring to that event. And um, I've got uh, quite a list of reasons why uh, I don't think that um, makes sense. One of which is very simply, why would God put the last book in the Bible when it has absolutely no relevance for anyone, but except for people that lived 2000 years ago. Um, So that's that then. And there's, yeah, there's numerous other reasons why uh, I don't think that holds water. So then there's what's called the historicist view. And I'm sorry for these big words, but that view takes the seven churches in chapters two and three and says history is divided into seven sections and each one of them corresponds to one of those churches. Mm. Um, the problem with that view is that nobody could agree on which um, section of history corresponds to which church and there's absolutely no indication in the text of the Bible itself that that would be the case. That he, you know, In fact, it's the opposite. The seven churches Uh, Because all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic, and seven, as we know, is the number of God and of completion, going back to creation, the seven churches symbolically represent the universal church, which means that the things that were written to those seven churches are applicable to any church in the world today. And if you look at those churches, two were in great shape, two were in terrible shape, and three were mediocre. And I think probably that just about fits the pattern of the average uh, church situation that we would face in any country. So that view um, is pretty well shot by now. Nobody really agrees with it. And then, of course, there's the what we call the futurist view, which has been popularized in um, how Lindsay, Late Great Planet Earth, and more recently in The Left Behind, Mm-hmm. Uh, videos which are and books which are all fictional, by the way, they're not based really on the book of Revelation, they're fictional. Um, and that is the polar opposite of the first preterist view, in that instead of everything being only in the past, distant past, everything is in the distant future. And so, uh, nothing in the book of Revelation, except for the letters to the seven churches, is of any relevance whatsoever to the church today and it's uh the entire rest of the book of revelation deals with the events in a seven-year period of what's called the tribulation uh and uh after the gentile church has been raptured out of the world so it's jewish people it pertains to living in the tribulation so um My question again is, as was with the Preterist, why would the last book of the Bible have absolutely no reference to the Christian Church, either past, present, or future? It only describes the situation of uh, Jewish people in this seven-year period of time, none of whom are now reading the Bible or reading the book of Revelation. Um, And that whole scheme uh, was cooked up in the year 1830, and it rose out of the vision that a young lady called Margaret MacDonald had in Scotland um, of a secret return of Christ. Nowhere in the history of the church had anyone come up with that kind of a doctrine. There's very good reason why they didn't because it's not anywhere in the Bible. Every time Jesus refers to his return he makes it clear that it says the lightning is from the east to the west so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. There's no secret return of Christ. There's no rap- rapture of certain people out of the world. And the Bible nowhere teaches a seven-year period of tribulation. Everywhere in the New Testament that the word tribulation is used, it refers to the present time in which we live. That is the period of time that the New Testament was written into in the first century and the period of time in which we live now, which is the, we could call it the church age period of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return. And there's a lot more uh, that I detail that I go into that I'm de- deliberately not going to because it's, it would just be be overload. Uh, that uh, view is is I'm, I reject that for I've got any number of good reasons for rejecting it. I just don't think it's correct. And I think that it's you know when I grew up as a Christian, virtually everybody on this continent held that that view, and uh, still today people will talk about. The rapture, as if it was the return of Christ. And uh, they don't even understand um, really what they mean by it. It's just something they've picked up in Christian terminology. Um, so that's something that uh, uh, I, but the problem with it is uh, it gives rise to an obsession with predictions um, right. and a great amount of fear. Because we're always thinking that, um, you know, uh, what's going to happen? We're reading the news because we interpret the book of Revelation by the latest news reports, you know, that are coming out of the Middle East. And every time something happens, we, somebody pops up on TV or writes a book or whatever and says, well, this is the meaning of it. And I have been a Christian since the 1970s. Um, you know, when I was uh, six months old, no, <laughs> it's worth a try. Um, and uh, I have seen uh, people with this particular theology have come up with so many wrong predictions. This, the Antichrist or 666 is this person, that person, the next person, dozens of them. You know, this is the end is about to come. People have even prophesied, you know, such and such a year, the Lord's going to return. And it never works. It's always incorrect. It's always wrong. And nobody ever goes back and says, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Maybe I should change my theology. So that kind of riles me up a bit. So the fourth and last view is called the idealist view. And that's the view that I hold. And in a very simple way, um, it states that almost all of the events in the book of Revelation are things that that are happening throughout the age of the church. So the plagues, the judgments of God are judgments that God sends in recurring cycles all the way through history. And he does it for two reasons. Number one, to challenge an idolatrous society. Number two, to wake up a complacent church. And so back in January of last year, I was in the United States teaching a class on eschatology. And I made the statement back, you'll remember back in just new years of last year we were just starting to hear news of this virus coming out of china and i said this is one of the plagues of revelation and uh and 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 it has turned out to be exactly that Mm -hmm. and i believe that god has sent it and you say well god doesn't send bad things but god is lord over all of history and he allows things to happen for a purpose uh and so uh, we have a society that has become, uh, wor- that is, worships the idol of its own technology, even if it's medicine. And, I mean, I'm all in favor of medicine, absolutely. I'll, I'll take be the first one to line up, take the vaccine, if we could just get some into the country. Uh, but uh, uh, if you worship that as the answer to all your solutions, any, any Christian doctor will tell you that you're a fool. You know, the doctor can only help you until the point where he can't help you. Yeah. And we live in a delusion of materialism where our technology and so on, it has the answer for everything. And and God pulls the rug out from under us and says it it, it doesn't. And then I think God's addressing a complacent church. Um, and uh, we've had a lot of shocks in, in church over the last year that who would ever thought, you know, and... Uh, uh, I think God God is, is it's a wake-up call. We're not praying enough, we're not seeking God enough. Uh, a Chinese uh, leader who was released from jail back in the 90s, uh, toured the United States, and at the end of it, a Christian leader said to him, brother, how do you feel about the body of Christ in the United States? And uh, he had toured some of the biggest ministries in the country, and the man just said very quietly, he said, well, it's amazing how much you've been able to do without God. Mm. Mm. Oh, It's a stinger, isn't it? So yeah. uh, I, think, yeah. I think God has upset all of our apple carts. But within the wider context, I think the book of Revelation has a message for us today. And I think it was written to uh, encourage. Well, the book of Revelation was written to encourage Christians who were under persecution
1: mm.
2: and The message was, don't compromise, don't sell out. Uh, Don't sell out your faith just to get uh, economically comfortable and socially accepted Um, because uh, the reward that you've got, even though you suffer now, the reward that you've got later is much, much greater. And uh, Revelation was written to a suffering church and to a a church under threat of compromise. Mm -hmm. And it applies to all of us that way. But if you, take, if, you rob, if, you, if you say the whole thing is all about Jewish people living in a seven-year tribulation, then all of that is robbed from the church. The book of Revelation finishes the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible in, a, in, a, in 30 seconds is the loss and restoration of the presence of God. The Bible starts in a garden that's a temple. Adam and Eve are the priests. They get kicked out. Um, because of disobedience, they fail to extend the garden to the ends of the earth. God then chooses Abraham and he makes Israel a light to the nations. And he says, you Israel, you, you extend the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Israel fails like Adam did. And then he sends his son and his son does extend the kingdom through the temple of the church to the nations of the world. And at the end of all that revelation ends in a temple, that's a garden. and. Uh, the river is there. The tree of life is there. Everything that was in Eden is there. There's only one difference. The devil is cast out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Revelation and Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation are like bookends on the Bible. And if you twist Revelation and make it only about a seven-year tribulation, you'll miss all of that. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of reasons. And I have taught way too long, Ron. And well, you're probably n- going to wrap my knuckles for it. David's probably texting you
1: behind the scenes saying, "Wrap it up, buddy. Wrap it up." No, not um, ch- at <laughs> all. No, no, not at all. That was uh, that was fantastic. There's, I, I just want to back up one second because um, fill in a bit. I mean, there's some people probably on this listening that have been taught about the rapture. You know, my uh, my background is very much like that. Where does that come from, and how have we misunderstood it? Can you maybe take a bit more time
2: to unpack that a bit? That, can you do that? Yes. Uh, the the rapture doesn't appear in Revelation anywhere, and even pe- the people that promote it admit that. The verse okay. the verses are in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, where it talks about the Lord descending, the Lord coming, and descending in the clouds, and we're caught up to meet Him, um, and Uh, we're caught up for a meeting in the air. There's two critical words there, the one of which is the coming of the Lord, which is the Greek word parousia, and the other of which is the meeting with the Lord, which is the Greek word apentasis. And both of them mean very similar. uh, And they were very, very common words in the Greek and Roman world, and even in the Hebrew world. And they referred to the coming of, let's say Caesar decided to visit, uh, you know, Athens. And uh, so the citizens of Athens would go outside the city to greet Caesar at his coming, which is his parousia. Caesar would, would make a parousia. The citizens would go out for a meeting or an appentasis with Caesar, and, and then they would escort him back into the city where, he would declare, where they would declare his authority over the city, and he would begin to exerce, execute judgment uh, Mm. and over, you know, all the important court cases. And so, um, uh, and Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 25, in the parable of the virgins, where the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom, and then they escort him back into the banquet. Mm. Uh, and so, um, and the same word comes in Acts 27, where Christians go outside of Rome for a meeting with Paul, um, and they escort him back into the city as a sign of honor. And so the jet, why I say all this is because the whole concept is that the king comes to be escorted into the city and to go over his rule. whereas the rapture theology teaches the polar opposite. It teaches that the citizens go outside the city to meet the king, who then takes them out of the world, and the whole world is handed over to uh, the opposing forces. That's the absolute opposite. And everybody that Paul was writing to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 would have known what that meant. So why the word rapture, um, so there's a Greek word uh, to be caught up to meet the Lord is the Greek word harpazo. If you translate it into Latin, which I did study Latin at university, so I'm I'm not just making this up. Um, uh, It's the word rapio. And the passive participle of rapio is raptum, and that's where we get rapture from. Um, the idea, though, in 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 um, Greek and Roman culture, uh, when a person died, uh, and of course they didn't have our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was all idols and superstition, and the idea was that the god of fate or fortune would come and snatch a person away, harpazo or raptum, same thing. They would snatch the person away to death. And uh, Paul uses the word snatched up or snatched um, as a deliberate statement because he's talking in one Thessalonians 4 about the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first and no one will miss out. Everyone will be raised from the dead and no one will miss out on eternal life. And uh, he uses this phrase that was the common word for death being snatched away in death, and he turns it around and saying, we're being snatched up into life by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus then, we escort him back into the city and declare his rulership, and he exercises judgment, just like Caesar did. He judges between the saved and the lost, right? The great white throne judgment. So what is the city that Jesus escorted back into? It's described in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the New Jerusalem. It's the renewed heavens and earth uh, that we will live and reign and rule with Him forever.
1: Wow, that is uh, that is absolutely beautiful, and I'm sure that uh, you've made a few people watching and listening to this lean forward in those few moments of of unpacking that. Um, let's let's move on because um, in your book Mystery Explained, uh, you say from the from the beginning John is rooting his vision in the Scriptures. And without an understanding of this, it is impossible to interpret correctly what he's saying. Um, can you shed some light on that for us? Fill that in. What, what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So this is something that nobody realizes, and it always shocks people uh, when when I get if I'm giving a live seminar, which God willing we'll all be able to do live yeah. seminars. And when we had a previous conversation, my wife was was rebuking me for inviting myself to vital point to give a seminar. And she said, I had some goal, but I gladly uh, come and do a seminar in your beautiful new facility. Once it's finished. Anyway, now she'd be mad at me again. Okay. so uh, When I give these in-person seminars, I'll get people to raise their hand. And um, so I'll say, look, uh, the book of revelation has 404 verses. How many, allusions to the old testament do you think there are in those 404 verses and um you know someone will say 25 and then someone say 50 and you know they'll bid it up a little bit uh and at the most you might get 150 or something like that and then i'll say well there are over 500 there are over Mm -hmm. 500 allusions to the old testament in 404 verses i wasn't very good at math but uh, that's about 1.25 per verse, right? So if you've got one and a quarter references per verse on average, that's a heck of a lot, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so the mo- moral of the story is you cannot possibly understand the book of Revelation without the old Te- reading the old Testament. Yeah. Um, and so all these uh, visions, cause John is having these visions one after the other. And, um, he is so steeped in the Old Testament that God, in the mystery of how God communicated this to him, it is just chock full of the Bible. And so, um, you know, you look at Revelation and you think, well, what, what's, with the stand, you know? uh, what's, what's with a lampstand? You know, what's what's with a woman with twelve stars around her head, and what's with this prostitute, and what's with locusts? What's with these scorpions and their tail and all these weird things? But then you realize that actually the woman with 12 stars is Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. It's it's his mother, father, and the 12 patriarchs. And then you look at the locusts and you realize Joel says, well, they're enemy armies. They're forces of the enemy. And the same thing. And then you look at scorpions and that that is linked with uh, the power of Satan. And uh, you look at lampstands. Well, that's the furnishings of the tabernacle. That's what stands before the Lord. And the Book of Revelation itself tells us that's the church. Uh, and you go through all these things one after the other after the other. And what are, what about these living creatures? You know, and the elders and all that. Well, Ezekiel saw them. Uh, you know, Isaiah saw them. Same thing. Daniel, you know, saw them. Um, and so uh, you begin to get a pattern. And then Above, all, above and beyond all that, you know, like, what's this business about the earth swallowing, uh, you know, the earth swallowing the water and, and, and rescuing the woman? Well, when you understand the woman from Genesis 37 is faithful, the faithful saints of the old covenant, uh, which birthed the Messiah. And then you understand that what, what's where did where in the Bible did the ground swallow the water? well that was the red sea
0: Hmm.
2: and uh and then it makes sense that revelation portrays the church as being in the wilderness because that's where the israelites went when they got out of egypt see we've got out of egypt except it's called babylon um we've gone across the spiritual red sea where the devil you know was was crouched before this woman to 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 devour the male child, but the male child is snatched up to the throne of God. Well, that's the devil trying to destroy Jesus in the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, the woman's lands in the wilderness for 42 months. Well, what's all that all about? Well, there were the children of Israel actually spent 42 years in the in the desert. 40 years, um, two years prior to you know, when they sent the spies into the land and gave the bad report, and then 40 years after that. Oh, well, this is all about, this is an analogy. It's a, it's a new exodus that's being replayed. And uh, the church is, is, is become Israel, and we're, the wilderness is this present world in which we live. The wilderness was the place of God's protection in the Bible. It's where he looked after Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, King David, uh, mm-hmm. as well as the children of Israel. But it's not just the place of protection. It's also the place of temptation, where they were tempted to idolatry. And it's the place where there were scorpions and lack. And the devil is there in the desert. He, te- te- he tempted Jesus in the, in the wilderness. And then at the end of the story, the church a- enters into the promised land, which is the New Jerusalem, which is why in the seven trumpet plagues, the seventh, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is in, in the book of Revelation, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, in is initiates the eternal kingdom of God and the judgment of the, of the lost, and it says that when the seventh trumpet um, was sounded, there was an earthquake, and the ark of God was visible. Now think for a minute, uh, where was the ark of God visible? In uh, where was the ark of God visible? in the old testament where was there seven trumpets blown where was there an earthquake and where was the ark being carted around in public view jericho right yeah what was jericho it was the end of the wilderness and the entry into the promised land and so the whole of revelation presents a picture of christians uh, being delivered out of spiritual darkness being preserved in a hostile environment, but one in which God is with them. And it ends with us going into the promised land. Mm-hmm. And when you understand that, and you understand the symbolism, because the woman gets picked up by an eagle in uh, chapter 12. Well, what's the eagle? Is this Lord of the Rings or something? No, but Tolkien, Tolkien was a Christian, mm-hmm. right? And he borrowed that from Isa- Isaiah, who, who said, you know, I'll, I'll carry you in wings of eagles. That's what that's about. It's the protection of God. So i have even forgotten what your original question was. Oh, there you go. Yeah.
1: Well, and and I think that this is fascinating because what you're doing for us right now is you are looking together. uh, The beauty and the wonder of this book connected to the Old Testament, because apart from that we're left going what like how does this apply how does this fit you said something there that struck me um i i may, may misquote this or or you have to fill this in about the wilderness and then you said something about idolatry like there's forms of that now and i've heard you talk off camera about this uh in in forms of idolatry in the in the, in the context in which we live now this is off script i know but can you maybe just very briefly talk about forms of that now in our lives? You touched on it, I think a little bit, a few minutes ago, but.
2: Well, idolatry is worship of anything but the true God. Hmm. And, uh, so, uh, when, uh, when we walk away from, uh, you know, like the three weeks of, of teaching that, that I did on the authority of scripture, um, that's God's covenant with us. That's his legal agreement with us. Uh, we, we don't have the right to mess around with it. The only reason we mess around with it is because there's something in it we don't like. Mm. And uh, there's a demand upon us. There's a requirement upon us that doesn't suit us. And so when we start to mess around with the Bible, we, we have an ulterior motive. There's some, something else that we want to pursue other than God. Or we want to try to mix our drinks, so to speak, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll just have a little bit of that over here, but we'll still attend church over there. And, uh, you know, God, God isn't, very, isn't pleased with that. So, I mean, if we're looking for acceptance, uh, in, um, if we're looking for social acceptance, for instance, in our society today, then sooner or later it will take us away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Um, because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wind up being more conformed to this world than we're conformed to God. And uh, God hasn't, you know, given us that option. Uh, Jesus, Jesus said, well, before you become my disciple, you better consider, uh, can you finish this tower that you've begun to build? You know, in other words, uh, if you've got, you can't have one foot in and one foot out of the kingdom. Now, I mean, obviously, we all understand that we're on a growth curve as Christians. That you know, there's stuff in our lives as young Christians that we don't do very well, and maybe, and we're still all on a growth curve. So none of us has reached perfection. But I'm not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a state of the heart. That whether you're you became a Christian last week or you've been a Christian for fifty years, God wants your heart. He He wants you to worship Him alone, and to that he has a place in your life that um, you will not uh, compromise your faith in, in him. And we all fail, and, and that's why there's grace and forgiveness and mercy in the body of Christ. But God's looking for men and women whose heart is to follow him. And that is a theme in Revelation, because in Revelation, there's this word, pornaya. Obviously, we get pornography from it. And it's uh, usually translated sexual immorality. But where it is used in the book of Revelation, it is given an economic meaning. So that because Babylon, which is the world system in which we live, is pictured as a prostitute. And it's like with the Old Testament prophets. They pictured Israel when they went into idolatry as prostituting themselves mm-hmm. uh, and and or engaging with prostitutes, right? And so... Um, idolatry is a form of prostitution or of engaging with spiritual in pr- spiritual prostitution so to speak uh, that's how uh, you know um, Ezekiel has some really lurid pictures and so does Hosea and uh, and Isaiah and Jeremiah about this and Revelation uh, which as I said is steeped in the Old Testament picks this idea up and so that if you are in, if you're if you compromise your faith to make money, for instance, in the world system, and you cut corners, uh, you know you cheat people, you don't pay your taxes, um, you you know you're you're unfaithful with your money, and so on, um, or or if you leave God off to the side in order to to spend all your time pursuing money, then you've committed sexual immorality. That's the one non-revelation, and so the problem. The Christians faced in those churches in the first century was that Caesar had declared himself a god and you had to worship Caesar and all of society was grouped into kind of like trade unions but they were guilds they called them and so if you wanted to practice any business doesn't matter whether it was uh, you know uh, uh, um, Well, I was going to say it wouldn't be electricians, but if you were a carpenter or if you were a banker, for that matter, you had to belong to one of these. And Mm. so the Romans came in and said, everyone that belongs to one of these guilds, which is everyone that has a job, has to conduct services in which they worship Caesar. And of course, the Christians were confronted with a terrible predicament, because if you didn't, then you could lose your job. You'd be kicked out of the guild. And what are you going to do? There's no welfare. There's no social security or anything like that, and so, um, so that's why Revelation talks about buying and selling and the mark of the beast. In that connection, it's it's in, it's the temptation uh, that that Christians faced that you know it could cost them uh, economically in a in a desperate way to be faithful to Christ.
1: Right. So, I want I want to ask you this question. You know, imagine that someone—we're um, finished this conversation—and a little bit, someone gets fired up, and they're like, "Wow, you know, like I—I'm going to start reading Revelation. What are some of the themes that they could expect to be reading? What do they need to be paying attention to uh, in in sort of approaching it? Obviously, we've talked about a lot of things, a lot of different angles on how connected to the Old Testament, but just sitting down what are some beautiful themes because you describe it so amazing in your book about how you know there's a there's a real need for us to be reading revelation and and allowing it to come to life but what are those themes what i mean you talk about three major themes in particular in your book
2: can you unpack that for us yeah well one of them is what i have just described which is That in this world, if we're faithful to Christ, there is a price that we'll have to pay. It may may not be uh, as dire in some countries as others. Uh, it may only amount to becoming socially unpopular because we don't go along with the crowd or whatever. Uh, but there is a price that we have to pay for being Christians. But the reward is greater if we hang in there. The reward is greater. You know, you you'll you you you. Uh, You keep, uh, you know, we, we gain what we can't lose. Uh, and we lose when we become Christians, we gain what we can't lose and we lose what we can't keep. I knew I'd get it right if I thought (laughs) long Um, so that's, that's one whole theme. And then, um, another theme is just simply the sovereignty of God because revelation presents God and Christ as sovereign, uh, The Alpha and the Omega uh, are God and Christ are described that way. And that means, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And it means God is Lord of the beginning, of the end, and everything in between. So there's a profound message of encouragement Mm -hmm. to Christians who may be suffering in this world or just going through a difficult time. I don't care, there's some of us watching tonight, they're going through a tough time. Maybe a sickness, maybe a family breakdown, maybe a job loss. uh, who knows what it is, but the revelation reminds us that Jesus is on the throne. He is sovereign, and and He'll look after you. You know, God God works all things together for good, even the bad things. He works th- together for good. God has the most incredible capacity to bring good out of the worst situations in life. So the sovereignty of God is real emphasis, and I also think that. Um, Uh, the worship of God is an emphasis in revelation because you get these magnificent scenes of worship in chapters four and five and seven and 14 uh, and the picture of um, the Lord God almighty being, being, you know, there's no temple because the Lord is the God almighty is the temple in 21 and 22. Um, And so uh, I feel that uh, the heavenly worship, John sees visions of what's going on now. He's seeing deceased saints, or he, he's seeing all the ages um, worshipping God. And um, so the heavenly worship should be the standard for our earthly worship. So mm-hmm. that that gives us a standard for what we do, at, say, at Vital Point on Sunday morning in our worship. Um, is it in line with what we see in the book of Revelation? Mm. You know, is it focused on God and on Christ, and of course the Holy Spirit is there as well, um, or is it, you know, a kind of a man-made production? What about our the songs that we sing? You know, mm. are they focused on God and on Christ? Uh, and we came away when I was a young Christian. We we're moving from you know, hymns to choruses. Now, the first choruses were all biblically based, but you listen to some songs, forgive me, but you listen to some songs that you you hear in churches today, and it seems to be all about what somebody is feeling like and not very much to do with God or Christ at all. So I don't want to get into a a hard thing on that, but I just think we need to examine what we're singing um, and make sure that it's biblical and it's honoring to God in Christ. And it's focusing more on who God is than on, you know, and I think of that amazing song, uh, uh, or hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. John Backus Dykes wrote it. I can't remember about 200 years ago and we sang it in the church I grew up in. We sang the first verse of it every Sunday morning. And it was just kind of a ritual to me as a young person. Um, And then many years later, when uh, I was in the middle of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, I heard that song being, that hymn being sung again, and it took on a whole new meaning. And of course, it's out of the book of Revelation. The whole thing is right out of the book of Revelation. And, you know, the cherubim and seraphim are there bowing down before him and all the rest of it. And it exalts God and exalts Christ, and there is power in it. I mean, the Holy Spirit comes down. On those lyrics as we sing them, uh, and anyway, I'm I'm so I, that's a theme of revelation as well. Yeah. So those yeah. are things, and then I mentioned the the way that it ties the Bible together in terms of the loss and restoration of the presence of God, and and it's such an encouraging thing to me that you know Adam messed up, he got kicked out of the garden. Then you had the situation in Israel; only one man once a year could enter that place where God dwelt. That was pretty restricted. And then at Pentecost, some portion of the temple of God kind of fell out of heaven on the city of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the Tower of Babel was reversed, and the, the curse of tongues was reversed, and everybody understood what was being said, and the gospel started going forth to every nation of the world. And, and God now, according to the New Testament, indwells us as his temple. And I think that is revolutionary. You know, we are one man and one woman, mobile tabernacles of the Holy Ghost. Uh, And, and of course it's fulfilled in the book of Revelation at the the end of it, that's where we're heading to. So it ties the Bible together that way and uh, in a very hopeful and positive way. So those are some of the themes of Revelation that I think are really significant.
1: Back to the uh, back to the worship for just a moment, because I mean that is so powerful when you read uh, like you know chapter four, or it, it, the description of that worship. If I hear you correctly, and, and maybe I'm 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 wrong on this, but there's a piece of that when we gather as a community, and we sing our choruses or our hymns or there's almost as if are, are we joining in with the heavenly worship in some ways mm. and the expression of that is there a, a a unifying factor in this if we're approaching it properly
2: like or am i just at a sync with you oh i agree and and w- another thing that i that is really interesting is uh, uh in terms of angels that it says that uh every church has an angel and uh, okay. some people roll their eyes and say, well, I don't believe that. Where do you get that from? Well, read Revelation 2 and 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, of course, you go back to Daniel and you find the archangel Michael, you know, as the patron saint of the of the people of God. And he reappears in Revelation in the same capacity. And, um, and of course, angels appear there throughout the Bible. Um, and... And what that says, you know, like I have never met an angel. I have met two people that have had what I believe to be absolute genuine encounters with with angels. One was a preacher who was driving up in northern Ontario and uh, in a very remote area. And suddenly this nine-foot man appeared in front of the car in brilliant white and and holding up his hands like that. He hit the brakes. He got out of the car. The man disappeared And there had been a rock slide and five feet ahead of him, there was a sheer drop of a hundred feet or something and he would have been killed. Well, I think, you know, that, that was an angel, (laughs) right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, And so like, I have never seen an angel. So I'm, you know, I'm not, um, I'm absolutely, I'm just being open about that. Um, I'd love to see one, but what uh, the revelation tells me is that every church has an angel and an angel, um, you know represents and fights for the church against the powers of darkness, and the local church is God's only means of extending his kingdom in this earth. there there ain't nothing else. it's the local church and so Satan loves to take local churches out. he loves to get them into false doctrine or you know liberalism or uh, moral failure or some disaster because if the church is gone there's no way for the gospel to go forward but i'm encouraged that vital point has an angel appointed maybe more than one i don't know you know do i have an angel appointed i maybe i don't know but i know there's angelic help for us uh in in the battle and which we're fighting and and yeah. and as we worship uh that angelic presence is there and it's like um it's like worship is is a place where we come close to touching the eternal presence of God, and the angelic ministry is obviously they're heavenly beings and yet they're operating on Earth, and I think there must be a special angelic presence in worship to lift us into a supernatural realm. I'm trying not to be. Airy fairy or whatever here, yeah. but I really believe it. And I'll, I'll say one more thing, which comes to my mind. Elaine and I were in a conference where the Holy Spirit was moving very powerfully. It was an incredible presence of God, and there were about five or six thousand people there, and there was just this hush. In you know, sometimes we think worship's got to be loud, and you know what? Uh, I don't agree with that. I mean, it can be, but it can. But I'll illustrate this. Every the sound dropped off. Everybody stopped singing. And there was a dead quiet in the room with 5,000, 6,000 people in. And it was so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop. And I knew that God was in that room. I knew it. It was just extraordinary. And out of absolutely nowhere, there was a perfect four-part harmony appeared. Everybody could hear it. And it was an angelic choir. the only time in my life i've ever heard it um so uh you know like these things are real Mm -hmm. and we're so bound by our materialism and our culture that our culture teaches us that it's only what you can access with your five physical senses that's real you know that's what we're taught by the world around us but we don't believe that and you know what The average person doesn't believe that either, but because the church has given up on the supernatural and, and gone and died out in so many ways, people go looking for the supernatural in the wrong places. And I hate to say it, but they're finding it in the wrong places. So Mm -hmm. we need to get back into the supernatural power of God because we're fighting a supernatural battle and the angels in revelation and the worship, uh, We should go into the presence of God in corporate worship, and God should come down and meet us uh, in such a way that um, the preaching is just kind of uh, the icing on the cake. But when you've been in worship, that God shows up, and you've got to preach, that is the best place to preach. If you go in and it's dead as a dodo, man, it's hard. (laughs) So I know that would never happen at Vital Point. Never, never, never.
1: Um, All right. So we need to head towards uh, wrapping some of this up. Um, So end times. um, You read a little bit ago, left series, book series, movie, I don't know. Um, I grew up in a time where scared death be left behind. That's how it it literally scared the hell out of you for some way and form. there's a lot going on right now talking about the end times, and and it's emerging in some of these crazy conspiracy theories and predictions, and how like, what do we do with that? Our, like, we poised this whole conversation and our marketing was around, are we living in end times? Can you um, what say what I, I wrote this what say you to these things, Dr. Campbell?:
2: <laughs> Well, first of all. It may be a surprise to some people to know that we've been living in the end times since the day of Pentecost. Because if you read Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2, 17 to 21, he says explicitly that we're living in the end times. And uh, James says the same thing, by the way, and so does First John, and so does Hebrews. Uh, and so the end times, from God's perspective, remembering with the Lord a day is a thousand years, right? His view of time isn't ours. We've been living in the end times since the resurrection and ascension of Christ and so what what most people refer to as the end times is what we could call the very end of the end times um right. the events immediately preceding the return of the lord and uh and um we anything that gives rise to fear is suspicious because satan is the author of fear so any kind of teaching that leaves people fearful is very very suspicious in my view. Uh, I had a lady come to a seminar I did um, a number of years ago on Revelation and she said, I have been to all sorts of seminars and teachings in Revelation. This is the first time I have come away feeling at peace instead of coming away fearful. And uh, Christians uh, why is it that Christians have gone into some of these stupid conspiracy theories and so on? I hope I'm not stepping on anyone's toes, but um, some of them are just ridiculous. And I think a lot of the reason is we've been primed for the last 40 or 50 years uh, to be looking for signs of the end in everywhere in the news, newspaper or now the Internet that we can possibly find them. And it's an industry, the eschatology industry. Um, the Left Behind people sold 60, over 60 million books at four or five dollars a book. Um, that's a lot of money. And I'm not saying the lack of integrity because I, I know that some of those men gave a lot of money away and all the rest of it. But, but there are a lot of unscrupulous people and, and preachers and, and so on that have capitalized financially on people's fears of end times and predicting stuff and, you know, put your investment here, put your investment there, because this is what's going to happen. And then of course it's, there's no factual basis for it. What it's just one big fraud. Uh, So I hate that. And uh, so we need to teach in, in such a way we need to teach the end times in such a way that people come out of it. Being uh, overawed by the sovereignty of God, by the control of God over everything, by the fact that He has everything in order, and you know Jesus said it two thousand years ago. He says, "Don't go running around looking for this, that, and the next thing. Don't just occupy yourself with building the kingdom." Martin Luther said, "If if I knew the Lord was going to return tomorrow, I'd still plant an oak tree today." Um, But if you get involved in this kind of obsession, then what's the point of doing anything for God? Because the Lord may come tomorrow, and the whole world is going to hell anyway. And and why bother to try to reclaim it for Christ? And I think it's a very damaging teaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's a good test. I mean, over the past year, I've had a a few people reach out to me and just talk to me about what do they do with a friend or family member that's really, you know, been sucked into the the nonstop conspiracy theories on YouTube and videos everywhere. And and I think that that's a really good, simple but yet life changing perspective on it. I leave this, and it's all it's done is created fear in me. And we got to be, got to be careful, like pay super close attention to it. And I think that that's an important part of, of being wise and, and using, you know, wisdom and stuff like that. So, um, all
2: so right. with, with one more thing added to that, which is yep. um, along the same theme, uh, the people that claim that uh, the vaccine is, you know, there's a microchip in it and it's the mark of the beast that is hogwash biblically the mark of the beast is not a physical mark it is a symbolic way of referring to people who are unsaved you are, the revelation says you either have the mark of god or the mark of the beast you you can't get the mark of the beast if you're saved because the mark of the beast is a uh. it, it indicates that your allegiance is to satan it is not a literal mark and i don't have time to unfold that here but i do in my book i teach on it very very carefully and so um, Uh, 666 is not to be identified with any person it is a reference to the demonic Trinity of the beast the false prophet and the dragon so don't look for 666 anywhere and uh, the buying and selling thing uh, has got nothing to do with any mark with any microchip that is absolutely zero in the book of Revelation and not in the book of Revelation so you know if you're an anti-vaxxer out there then you know, please don't use the Bible to back up your anti vax uh, theories, right? I'm not taking a, a stand on that. I you know, I mean I I'm not I'm I'm not taking a stand on it. I'm just saying don't use the Bible in any way whatsoever to suggest that this vaccine is of the devil because there's you will find no support in the Bible and uh, you will be a poor witness to Christ because unsafe people out there will look at you as if you've got three heads or something, you know, and, and it yeah. brings discredit to the Lord. Yeah. 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 And so Beautiful. I hope that wasn't controversial, but, uh, well, uh, I, I just add that in because, uh, you raised the topic. I'll blame you. Yeah.
1: yeah. Blame me. Blame me. All right. One last question. Then we got, do we have some questions to follow up, David? Yeah, or, Dave? Two, or
0: few, two, two and a few questions for you.
1: Okay, so let me end with this. Uh, Back to that, you know, someone sitting down tonight, opening up Revelation and starting. Uh, You've painted a beautiful picture of how to approach it, the themes and all that. Is there a word of caution that you should give us in reading it or or not? I mean, I I put that in there as our last one because I just feel like it was important to kind of just put that there. But if you don't think there is, then we're good.
2: Well, I, I think read the book of Revelation with an inquiring with with in your mind. Um, you know, if you if you have a study Bible or even most Bibles have though that fine print in the margins that gives the cross texts. Uh, if you're reading Revelation, stop, take a little extra time, and look at some of those cross references, mm-hmm. and uh, and see how much light that throws on it. Um, try to read it with the picture I. Painted of the Exodus because it makes sense of a lot of it, and um, you know, I mean, I wrote the book uh, so that the average person could sit and read it and consult it, you know, for an explanation of what it means. And I've had, you know, I have had great response from it. So, but don't shy away from it. That that's the worst thing that you could do is to walk away from it. Uh, you know have a go and ask the Holy Spirit to show you and give you wisdom and insight uh, in into what it means and maybe do a little spend a little extra time looking up the cross references uh, and and oh you, you know soon the light will come on and you, oh that's what that means that's what that means now it begins to make sense right yeah
1: that's beautiful
0: that's really good I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at the book of Revelation right now and there's a lot of cross cross referencing um. So that's a great Is there
2: more allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation than in every other book of the New Testament combined. Oh, combined. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's incredible.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible. Um okay, so uh, Dave, a couple yeah. questions came in. want yeah, so
0: We've those? had a question come in about chapter seven and the hundred and forty-four thousand. Can you kind of explain that and open up that a little bit for us? Yeah, so,
2: so all, again, I mean, I can only touch on it, but all the numbers in revelation are symbolic. Mm. Uh, but when I, and, uh, but when I say symbolic, I don't mean they're meaningless. The symbolism is, it has to be found through uh, the old Testament references. So uh, for instance, 12 is the number of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And when you multiply 12 times 12, you get 144. A thousand is the biblical number for an indefinitely large, either an indefinite yeah an indefinitely large number or period of time. So when you multiply 12 by 12, and and then by a thousand, you're taking the faithful saints of the old covenant, the faithful saints of the new covenant, and multiplying it to become an indefinitely large number of people, because what John sees when he sees 144,000 is he is seeing the entire body of Christ of all ages faithful saints of the old and new covenant in an innumerable multitude um so revelation presents itself at the beginning in the very first verse I explain this carefully in my book uh that it needs to be interpreted symbolically and it's all based on Daniel's prophetic interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And uh, what that means is that, um, all excuse me, whether it's the numbers, or whether it is, um, whether it is, uh, you know, the, the strange creatures or whatever that he sees, uh, or objects like candle, candlesticks, lampstands, um you you there's are symbolic representations of something that is real in the old testament you go back to the old testament you find out what it means and then you get the key to understanding it so uh so it refer revelation refers to very real events but you have to understand them through the old testament hmm. I mean. and the one hundred forty-four thousand is, is an example of that hmm. uh and there's some other examples of, of numbers as well It's interesting that, um, I quote, the word Jesus appears, I I could be wrong, but Jesus appears seven times, uh, spirit 14 times, lamb appears 28 times. I may have those mixed up, but they're multiples of seven, which is the number of God. And uh, 666, obviously, is the, six is the number of of, uh, fallen humanity and rebellion against God. So it's no accident that the word Babylon appears six times in the book of Revelation. There's all sorts of stuff like that. another. I can see why you got so fascinated by it. All right.
1: One more question, Dave.
2: Yeah. Another question we got was around the
1: thousand years.
2: Right. So there's another example of the numerical symbolism with the Lord of the day is is a thousand years, Peter writes, and you get the same thing in the old Testament. So the thousand is an indefinitely long period of time. So the 1,000 years is not a literal 1,000 year period um, and you get any more than, say, the, um, the, the uh, uh, wall of the New Jerusalem, which is 144 cubits, and, and then the, 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 uh, uh, that signifies the saints, again, it's the, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of the Lamb are there in the New Jerusalem in the foundation and the gates. So 12 times 12 is 144. It's not a literal, it even, anyway, I mustn't get into that. Um, The thousand years is an indefinitely long period of time. And my argument is if you understand Revelation chapter 20 correctly, that, and and, and I've got all sorts of reasons for showing this from the text, that the thousand years refers to the period of time from the resurrection of Christ Mm. until his return. It's the age in which we're living. It's described two ways in Revelation. One is the tribulation, and the other is the millennium. It's the age in which we're now living. Mm. Mm. So there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. There is eternity, eternal reign of Christ, uh, pictured in chapters 21 and 22. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and those are beautiful. Beautiful pictures at the at the end of the book, which
1: are. I, I can remember just had this moment, uh, David. I, I remember preaching on on sections of this and reading this at the end. Um, that that Revelation passage that you just referred to, and I was at the end of a message, and I can remember breaking down, and I couldn't figure out why I was so broken. But it was, I think it was the depth of understanding, the power of what God was bringing us to and towards and and ultimately the you know that arc of what we talked about at the beginning with the temple and ending with the temple and then this beautiful picture and i'll never forget at that moment it caught me so off guard it's not you know it really broke me so um all right we are about done uh is there any is there david dave is there any other questions or no
0: no no other questions i think i've got people texting me in the back Same. they're just having their minds blown. They don't even know what to ask anymore. Um, (laughs) It's such a great response. And um, it's just so great to see people that are just checking in tonight and and having a chance to unpack this and see someone that is passionate about it be able to help them. And I love how you said make it really – you wrote a book that people can read where they can have the text in one hand and then the book in the other. Um, I think tonight is kind of a representation of
2: what your heart is for people to understand the book of Revelation. So if, if I can sort of close with one comment, which is kind of a, a often a slight tangent, but um, in some wild and woolly charismatic churches, um, people have this idea of prophecy as being, you know, a, a thunderbolt from heaven. Mm-hmm. Strike somebody, they start frothing at the mouth and saying, thus saith the Lord. Well, John is a prophet. He describes himself as a prophet, actually, in the line of the Old Testament prophets. The last of the Old Testament prophets, really, is John. And uh, um, here he is giving the longest prophecy in the whole Bible. We all agree on that, right? The book of Revelation. And yet here's a man whose head is chalk full of the word of God. And so my argument is if someone pretends to be a prophet, mm. if they say you've got to empty your head and wait for some thunderbolt, I am not interested in hearing whatever dribble they've got to say. Forgive me, but I am not. Um, I am looking for a man or a woman whose uh, mind and heart are so full of the word of God that anything they say uh, from a prophetic perspective Is passed through the filter of scripture, Uh, because all prophecy is is applying scripture. That's what it is. May have a bit of a supernatural twist, a word of knowledge, or something. And so John is this great model for prophecy, and uh, and I think if we could receive prophecy that way, a lot of people would have their hearts set at rest because, you know, they don't like that other model. And they've seen that it doesn't go anywhere good. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, he's, John is a great encouragement for any of us to live and think biblically. And I would just say, for you know, I, I, I know I've planted bombs with some people and tonight and, and your mind's blown and all the rest of it. Uh, don't give up on, on Revelation. Um, I'm just trying to provoke you to thinking and stir you up to get into the text yourself. And John Calvin said, um, nobody can understand the Bible without a revelation of the Holy Ghost. Calvin said that. And, uh, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will show us and teach us and interpret to us the Word of God if we have a heart that's open to Him. Uh, so that's my closing uh, encouragement to you well thank you so much uh, David for doing this uh, with us tonight we
1: are so grateful you have not asked us to plug your book but uh, I got my copy uh, Dave is upset that it didn't buy two um, but uh, this is a this fantastic I'm only a part way in and I've been reading it with my Bible in hand as well so uh, thank you so much for being part of this thank you for speaking life into vital point and I am so incredibly grateful that God has allowed our paths to cross, and I'm extremely grateful for your teaching, and um, even how you give Dave a hard time, like all the time, which is awesome. So thank you so much for being here, and those participating, watching, thank you for this listening, awesome stuff. We've recorded this, so you can go back and listen to a number of these things. Thank you, everyone, for being here, and have a good night.